Um, so this last session, this last message, I want to talk a little bit, obviously, about kind of how we look outward. Um, and, and as I do that, and I, again, I'm not talking about your church or hopefully our church even, but I think in a larger church sometimes, uh, we can get a little strange. And I think sometimes, especially this thing that we call worship gathering, can become this weird kind of dynamic where it's almost like we're trying to put on this tremendous show. So like churches will do, and, and I'm a believer, we do whatever we can to get people in the door. Like, let's, let's be creative. I'm not an opponent of that, but it can get a little strange. It's like, it almost can become like a rock concert, like get smoke machines up there and get like animals on stage. And I've seen motorcycles and do like, there's some weird stuff that can happen. And I think in response to that, some people, what they've, they've, they've started to say is, um, you know, church, it really shouldn't be about all this like singing and prayer and preaching, but really making a difference in the community. Because all we're doing is spending a lot of time with ourselves and putting on this huge show and putting a lot of money into that. But it, what, what should really be the churches out there among the poor or out there serving people, or out there being visible, and the, like downplaying corporate worship, downplaying that aspect of coming together. Like, whoa, we do too much of that. We need to be out. Um, but I think that's a false equivalence. I don't think it's like an either or. I do believe we should be out there and all that. And I do believe sometimes the gathering can become this weird thing. But I don't think that means we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because gathering together like we're doing even here, it's a significant aspect of our growth as we follow Jesus. We're called to be together. And, and this is just my opinion, but from the scriptures, I actually believe we should place even a higher value on singing and prayer and, and fellowship and preaching and communion than we probably already do because those things are meant to gaze our eyes upon God and worship. It's critical. I mean, that is significant. And be, I believe we give God more glory when we gather corporately. It reminds us that it's not about us. And, and for y'all... You know, it probably feels like a sacrifice sometimes to come worship together. That's not a bad thing. Because it also reminds us around the world, literally to gather together and worship is a possible life and death experience. It's like having to go underground because if people find out you're gathering as Christians, you could have your church bombed. You can have terrorists um, destroy that thing because it is very much uh, a countercultural call to follow Jesus. So I, I want you to know, I'm setting all that up to say, I believe highly in corporate worship. I think it's critical. So I don't think the issue is that we gather together. Maybe it's more why we gather together. And I think it's easy to lose sight of that. Because I think we can lose sight of God's bigger story if church ultimately just becomes about us. And even those questions sometimes we ask after, say, a Sunday service, so what did you get out of it? That's not a bad thing. Hopefully we're getting something out of it. But that can become like the driving aspect of church. And we have to remember, and this is like a big idea for you to chew on today, that the church is God's primary strategy for mission. I, I believe that with all my heart. I've seen it, but I've also studied it, and I'm convicted of it, that the local church is ultimately God's primary strategy for mission. That is never just about us, and I love talking with your pastors here because I can tell this is a part of your DNA already. So I just want to add on to hopefully what you've already con been convicted of. So let's start by looking at the book of Acts, and we're looking at chapter 6. 
and, and we'll read from verse 8. And we're reading about this man, Stephen, one of the early leaders of this church. And we start in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then... Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set a false witness who who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So if you read earlier before this, you see that Stephen was actually chosen as one of the first deacons, one of the first servants of this church. And he was a man described as full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. But here, as he's publicly doing ministry, he's being accused of blasphemy. And and people are claiming, yo, this cat, Stephen, this man, Stephen, he's a heretic. He's part of this new cult. And and they're trying to throw away all our customs. They're trying to trash all our traditions. We are the people of Israel. These are the things that have formed us. And yo, he's just flushing these things down the toilet. He's dishonoring Moses. Moses, one of our fathers. And, and this might have been the most heretical thing that they thought. He's pre- speaking against the sanctity of the temple, the place where we meet God, the place where we sacrifice. He's saying none of that matters anymore. So Stephen's got an opportunity to defend himself, but instead he gives this speech, which he starts in chapters, we see in chapter 7. Here's just a few of the highlights. In verse 2, it says, Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And Stephen's just making his argument from the Bible, from the history, from the law. He's saying, Yo, remember Father Abraham? Father Abraham we love? Um, The founder of our Hebrew nation? Yo, it didn't occur here in Jerusalem where the temple is. It happened in this place called Mesopotamia. It happened in this foreign land. That's where God started our people. And from there, Stephen, he goes on to give these, all these descriptions of God's work to rescue his people through servants like the patriarchs, through, through people like Joseph, Moses. And, and what he's doing very pointedly, I would encourage you, we're not going to do it here, but read through it on your own. Because he shows all of this activity, God's redemption, it happens outside of their geographic region. It happens outside of their holy center in Jerusalem. And it's places like Egypt and the desert. For instance, he describes the law being given. I mean, they, he, he's not saying we disregard the law. We love the law. But here's how it was given to Moses in verse 38. He says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. 
He's simply stating, yo, we hold the law up high. But guys, the law was not given to us in Jerusalem in a temple. We didn't have a temple. It was given to Moses in the desert, in the wilderness. And then verse 44, he, he, he brings it home. He says, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern they had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed, dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? What Stephen is so eloquently declaring here is that God has never dwelled among his people because they had a fancy temple or because they had an elaborate cathedral. God has never said, oh, guys, now I'll dwell with you because you finally built me this nice house. God has never lived in a physical building. He never did, and he never will. Stephen, I, I really believe here he was given a prophetic voice, and I think he even got it a little bit earlier than some of his peers in recognizing what was to come. Because though his words were used to, they were twisted a little bit to defame him, there was actually some truth to the claims that he was making here. He was recognizing that this movement of the Christ, this movement of Jesus and his spirit, it would never be contained within man-made walls, but it would be led by the very spirit of God, roaring and raging and moving, and there's no way some building is going to hold that down. In fact, this was such a radical claim Stephen made, that we read in the next few verses, it would allow him to make history as the first person to be reported to be killed because of his faith in Jesus. He was killed because this angered the leaders so much. And I would suggest that what Stephen says here, it's a timely reminder for us as the church and our mission. And I started earlier talking about why gathering is so important. And part of the reason I did that is I want to set proper context for you to understand what I'm saying. Um, because as important as gathering together is, as, as critical as I believe our worship, whether on Saturday or Sunday or whenever we meet, I believe that's critical, but it's really easy to lose what it's all about. And some of you, especially if you're newer to the faith, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because sometimes if we're in church so long, we can start to lose why we do what we do. But if you're newer to this, like you probably know this already. Because if you're a Christian long enough, there's this like deeply ingrained idea in our culture that the whole point of it is to have our behind sitting on a chair on Sunday mornings. Like that's like God's ultimate goal. But think about it. How ridiculous does it sound that like God is in heaven somewhere and he's got some accountants and they're like, all right, start counting guys Sunday morning all around the world. Oh, ooh, yeah, we got all time zones. So keep counting and like counting. Okay, there's Joe. Oh, and there's Sally. Oh, there's Bob. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Stephen must have softball season starting off. He's not there. Mm, check him off. We'll give him two times before we'll have a deacon get on him. Um, and, you know, as if they're t it's like there's some roster, some spreadsheet some Google Doc in heaven, like God is marking down every person. I mean, there's just something a little bit off about it. 
it's it's just a little weird to think about it. And and I, I'm I'm making a little light of it, but I, I'm trying to drive home this point that the expression of our religion, it can never be reduced to merely showing my face in a nice meeting held in a nice building. We've got to fight that we never reduce our religious faith to showing up and being present for a nice gathering. As great as it is, as, as epic as it is, that can't be like the reduction of our faith. And don't get, I mean, you can tell um, I love corporate worship, especially when I get to preach, because I just love delivering the word of God. I mean, my Fitbit monitor, my heart rate goes up. I'm getting a workout. I love it. I love being in our church. In our, our church building, it's an old, classic church building in Baltimore from the 1800s. So we got stained glass and pews. It's just gorgeous. I mean, it's beautiful. It's like, it's like elaborate, ornate. I love it. But I remind our church of this pretty regularly, and I'm, I'm not being prophetic, so I hopefully our people don't get too freaked out. But lightning could hit our building one night, set that thing whole, whole thing ablaze, and it all comes down. And I'd probably be crying because that'd be tragic. But here's the reality. The church would still be present because the people all make up the church. And... That would happen, but you'd get some email blast middle of the night saying, hey, guys, let's pray. Let's grieve a little bit because our whole building came down. But, guys, y'all, go meet in your groups. Meet in your homes. You are still the church. We can still meet. It's going to look different, but we are still the church. So gather together because we are not just a building. We are the very people of God. That is a church. Amen? I love the way our building looks, but that's not our church. I love when we gather to meet, but that's not our church. Our church is the very people of God, captured by the Spirit of God, moving forward, gathered in unity to be dispersed on mission. As beautiful as our spaces are, as beautiful as our meetings are, we cannot make the mistake to make those the centerpiece of our church. The people of God gathered by and in the spirit of God, that's what's sacred. And, and I think it requires a fundamental shift even to in how we use our language. I'm like, I'm like um, anal retentive about this, OCD about this in our church. Like when people say, are you going to church? I'm like, no, 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 let's not do that. Because what you're saying is that this like hour and a half, two hours, that this is church. No, 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 no. We go to um, a gather to be with the church. Like, I'm like really pointed. Let's not say that this is what we, this is like church as if that's all of it is. Or even, um, and I have nothing against this, but like I try to train our people. Not, let's not say when we're starting to singing, say, now let's get ready to worship. It's, it's, it is worship. It's part of it, but it's like the singing component of worship because the reality is all we do is worship. Not just when we're sitting there doing the singing. That's a really great way to express worship. But all of our lives are worship. Even in the parts that seem mundane. When we're with our neighbors. When we're at work. When we're with kids. When we're doing these things that seem so ordinary. Even that is our spiritual act of worship. When we are in Christ. So guys, let's not reduce just what we do here to the worship. And I know being a retreat, that's hard because this feels so worshipful. You got praise band leading you. You got prayer time. You Even the food feels a little more holy because you're in the space. But guys, we've got to recognize that's not only worship. It's a heightened sense of it. But when you go back down off the mountaintop, back into your homes, back into the everyday grind, that is also worship. 
and the church is scattered for that. Because we have to recognize why God has us gather like this, like we do on Sundays, that for his glory, when we are singing these songs, when we're listening to the sermons, when we're being fed by the word of God, when we're being united in fellowship, when we're serving other people, say on a Sunday, those things are not just to keep a worship service going, but those things are also to equip us to be sent back out into the world. That when we gather together, it's not just to have a nice religious experience, but it's to equip us, it's to train us, it's to mobilize us to send us back out in the world. That we represent God. Um, from 2 Corinthians 5, I think this is helpful to understand this a little bit. Our role, in verse 18, it says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we, may, we might become the righteousness of God. And in just a couple of verses here, Paul is telling the world, you want to know what it means to be saved in Christ? Here it is. It means that in Christ, God showed himself to the world. That in Christ, God has a way for us to be made right with God. And, and that what Christ did was that for our sake, in verse 21 there, Christ, who knew no sin, who was perfection embodied, he became our sin on the cross. He took all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our pain upon himself, and instead gave us the righteousness of Christ. There was a great exchange. It wasn't fair. Christ really got the short end of that stick, but he did it in love so we can be made right with God and become the righteousness of God. Paul is telling the world, you want to know what it means to be saved? This is it. And he's saying, you want to know how it's true? Look at me. Look at my life. Look at us. You want to know this is true? Look at the people because we're called to be the ambassadors of Christ. That our lives when we experience the gospel and salvation and, and, and all of those fruits that come with it, our lives are the demonstration to the world. That's what ambassador is. We're showing the world, you want to know that this message is true? Look at us. Look at what God has done in us. It, it's, it's amazing here in verse 20 where it says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Through us. That boggles my mind because I know who I am. I'm like, God, there is, I think there's a real better way you could do this. There's a better, like, I, I sometimes imagine, God, if you just got your God pen out one day and went into the sky and just started writing, like, in big cursive, dear world, it's me, God, I'm real, follow me. I'm like, yo, the whole world would follow him. Who could deny that? But then the scriptures actually tell us people saw miracles and they still didn't believe. But instead, God has said that the way I'm going to show the world, it doesn't seem very practical. It doesn't even seem that efficient. Is I'm going to use broken, wounded, people prone to falling back, prone to wander, vessels like y'all, the church. But I'm going to put my spirit in you. And even in your weaknesses, I'm going to reveal my strength. And I'm going to send you out to be my ambassadors. You're going to be ones going to those who are in a foreign land and telling them who Jesus is 
through your life. Because to a world separated from God, our transformed lives are God's message that you can also know God and have your life transformed as well. And, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about mission. Sometimes we talk about mission as just those people who go to another country and, and share Christ. That's, that's a very critical, huge part of missions. We need to do that even better. But guys, we can't reduce missions to only that. Mission is just our life being lived for the world. It might not even look that sexy or that spectacular, but it's us living our life with Christ in us. Ultimately, I think when we talk about mission, our focus is also should be on who are you becoming? Because if your life is the message to the people, if your life shares the message of Christ's reconciliation, then who we are becoming is a part of our mission as well. Because your transformed life is the most effective way for God to reveal himself to a world that doesn't know who he is. And some of you have seen this already, right? Some of your stories are a little bit more like, oh, wow. Like people who knew you five, ten years ago are like, oh, you're in church? You, you going to a retreat? Is there like a party up there? No, I'm going to worship Jesus. What? And, and people will see genuine change in your life. And you're not perfect, but they're going to be like, wow, something's going on here. Something's going on here. God wants to continue to reveal himself to the world. And, and I, I think for me, that's just the normal part of the Christian faith. But I'm, I'm a little worried sometimes when I'm around a lot of our Christian subculture that if we're not careful, we start to, and I see this in our church all the time, our people start to just start to believe that the church is ultimately about like being for Christians and even how can we better be a place that Christians, when they move to Baltimore, they're going to want to come to our church. And I'm like, that's not bad. That's not wrong. That, that's a part of it. But we've got to always recognize God is saving people who are dead. And, and that, that should not be abnormal. That should not be weird. That should not be uh, the anomaly. That should actually be a part of our rhythms, that we are growing in mission. And what that means, we're always thinking as ambassadors to those who are on the outside, helping them to see there's a family waiting for you to come home. And, and the thing is, there are some people who I love who are very much believers in that. And because they're such a believer that we want more people to know Jesus, we want those who are outside the church to feel like they can come into church. I think sadly what they do, though, is they say, well, you know, there's no way we can hold to the message of the Bible then because this is archaic. The sexual morals in this, the, the roles about uh, conversation about men and women and about slavery and, and about, uh, like, wars. And, yo, there's no way in 2018 we can share this message with people. This doesn't work. We, we've got to really, we've got to change the message of this so that we can make it more palatable. And we use words like contextual, and I believe in contextual, but I think we can twist it incorrectly to say, hey, for us to be more attractive to the world, maybe we need to not talk about certain things in the Bible because it's just not going to work in 2018 America. But you know what the thing's? People for thousands of years have been saying that for every generation. Oh, there's no way this is going to work in 15th century Europe. <laughs> Oh, there's no way this is going to work in 19th century Asia. That people have been saying this throughout. But what I want to say here is I don't believe the, ch uh, the challenge is that our message is too old or that the message is past due date. I believe the message doesn't change. I believe the message is still the same. Christ reconciled. God loves the world. He does it through Christ. We receive as we repent and receive Christ. I believe that message stays exactly the same.
that the word of God doesn't shake at all, even though we might change as people. So I don't think it's an issue of the message needing to change, but maybe more how we convey the message needs to change, how we translate it. Um, I think the challenge with modern expressions of Christianity, from my observation, is that we've got an incredible message, but I'm not sure how effective we are at translating it into the culture we live in. So um, <laughs> I'm not a tech guy at all. I think that's one of the reasons God graced me with my wife, because she's incredible techie. And she's actually, we, uh, when you talk about gender roles in marriage and stuff, um, she does all the fixing and stuff around the house. And like she, like, when she, there's something broken, she just gets on YouTube and knows how to learn how to do I, that. I'm useless, right? I, um, I pray for a house. That's what it is. <laughs> but here's the thing. Um, I remember once I had to go into one of those big box tech stores because there was something broken with my computer and some wiring issue, so I took it in. And I'm trying to explain it, but I, I have no clue what I'm talking about. I'm like, yeah, this wire is not like working with this, and this thing comes up, and, and the guy, no joke, this, this text looking at me, he's like, your problem is the, and goes into all this technical language, like the doohickey with the, and he's like speaking really slow like this. I'm like, yo, Holmes, I understand English. I'm not like, yeah. My problem is not that I don't understand English. I have no clue about the language you're talking about. That's my issue. And, and sometimes, even as Christians, I think sometimes what people in the church have done is like, it's like almost like when you're talking to someone in a foreign language, you just speak lower and, or louder and slower as if like that's the issue. And probably some of you had people do that to you, right? Like the waiter asked for your order and you just didn't hear. So they, no, would you? No, I just didn't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and sometimes I think what Christians have done is they've taken that timeless message of Christ but they're like oh we just need to be louder about it and like pull out a bullhorn and yell a little bit more because it's not clear and I, I don't think that's so much the issue but I think there's a way that we need to learn how to translate this beautiful, timeless message to those who are in possibly a different culture than even a generation ago. And like learning any language, it requires immersion. And um, I grew up, I grew up, I'm, I think I'm older than probably everyone, I'm definitely older, I think, everyone here. I grew up in an era in America where the mentality was, um, if you don't speak only English, you're gonna fall behind in school, you're gonna not be able to pick up things intellectually. So I didn't learn any Korean growing up. So I was like totally illiterate when it came to Korean culture and language. And then I went to college and I went to college doors. There were some Koreans and like I became immersed with Korean folks and it was painful at first, but it's funny. After a few years of that, only hanging out with Korean people, like I started to learn to be able to speak Korean some more. I started eating more Korean food. I started even learning how to rap in Korean. I mean, it was like weird, right? Watching Korean dramas and like understanding it. And it's because I was immersed into that culture. And that's all I came to know. And that formed even how I view the world. And I think in the same way, I, there's a pastor, his name's Jeff Vanderstelt. He wrote this great book called Gospel Fluency. And he talks about this idea that fluency in the gospel, being able to speak and understand the gospel language, it requires immersion in a gospel-speaking culture. Just like if you want to learn a foreign language, the best thing is to go to that country and just live there for a year. In the same way, if we want to get fluent in speaking gospel, we need to be in gospel-speaking cultures like your church. 
So, guys, I hope this is more of a motivating factor than, yeah, you know what, you're supposed to go to Bible study because that's what good Christians do. Maybe. Or I want to learn how to be best trained to speak the gospel, to understand people, understand my context. And when I come to church, that's what happens. I'm being trained in a gospel-speaking culture. I'm being immersed in a culture that we do this, that it's equipping me for mission, to be fluent in the life saving message of Christ. And what it does is helps you to know God better, but it also helps you to know yourself better and others better. And I want to encourage you then, and and you really got to fight for this and help your leaders because I know they're trying to do it. But the way you approach church then, look at it as a training ground for how can I be better equipped to be a gospel fluent kind of person. That ultimately, the sermons are not just about what I can get out of it that day. The, the Bible studies are not just about what I can learn more about Jesus. I'm, I'm a fan of learning, but we can just become Christians who get these giant big heads and never like live it out. How am I going to approach group and saying, Lord, how am I going to be getting trained during small group this week because I'm going back out into my mission field? I'm going back to teaching. I'm going back into school. I'm going back to my workplace. I'm going back to my family. How can I be trained to be a gospel-fluent follower of Christ? And, and this is just me, but I believe when our groups have that perspective, it's not just for the Christians, but it's an incredibly great place for unbelievers as well to learn gospel culture. So we don't just study the Bible just to learn more, but we talk about, so how does, how does like the gospel apply to how we approach work then? Because if you're like me, man, work, work's brutal. I go 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week, and I feel like I'm just a number. I don't even know what I'm doing, and I entered it with these high hopes that that would be like the place where I shine for Christ, and I'm just trying not to cuss at this point. Like, it's, like, it's like really hard. It's a battle. And in group, then, you talk about, hey, what does the Bible say? What does the gospel say about how we approach our work? How do we view vocation as the sacred place where God provides for us, but we're also able to use our skills, use our gifts. And unbelievers, they're just being involved in that language immersion. And they're starting to say, oh, wow, y'all struggle with that too? I hate work. Wow. And instead of just, uh, this is where the message of the gospel becomes like real. Like how does it change the way I approach work? Or, or marriage, you know, marriage, where, where you come into group and it's like, hey guys, anyone struggling? Man, I am just struggling with my marriage this week. I'm struggling because I went into it thinking it was going to save me from my, all my sadness and my loneliness, and I feel it even more here. We're just fighting, and we're angry, and we're like, and I don't understand what's going on. And that in a gospel-immersed culture, we start to be able to train one another and say, yeah, you know what? Marriage is great. It's such a blessing, but it's also God's way to reveal how selfish we really are, how self-centered we really are, how really we want someone to serve us rather than serving someone else. And God uses that to show us his goodness. He draws us to himself and to unbelievers. You might say to them all day, hey, you're a sinner who needs Jesus. And they'll be like, okay, if it works for you, that, that's cool. But, you can't. but if you say, you know what, man, marriage is so hard, but God gives me hope in it. That's one common thing, whether you're a religious Jesus freak or whether like, you're Satan-worshipping pagan, marriage is impossible for everyone. And when you start to say, this is how the gospel allows us to go into something like marriage and find even redemption in some, for some of us that feels like the darkest place, those are ways that we start to create a gospel culture. 
So don't just assume that people know what it means to live in faith. But as you gather together, speak about those things. And guys, this is, I think this is really exciting because it's a fundamentally different way to view than what the church is. Because so many of us and most of the culture still think of church as that hour and a half, hour, two hours that we spend once a week. That's church. And that's a part of church. But if that's all it is, honestly, that's kind of lame. I'm not saying worship is lame, but if that's all it is, we're missing the point. Because what, what we try to explain at our church is this is equipping, training ground for all of life, for all of mission. And you've probably heard this illustration before. If you've heard it, just you can follow me again here. But it's like, um, it's like if we got an airport like BWI or Reagan, you know, whatever airport you go to. And if like we send an announcement out to our church and say, yo, guys. We're going to have a major party this Friday night, and we're going to be meeting at this place called Reagan Airport. We're going to meet there because they got all these chairs, and they got, like, so many big screen TVs there. And, yo, they got food court. It's going to be an epic party. Let's go. Okay, so let's meet at the airport at 7, all right? Woo! Let's party. People are going to look at you and say, that, that, that's weird. No, because why? You know that an airport is not a place you go to to hang out. If anything, you're trying to your best to get out of there, right? We hate having stuck in airport because as nice as it is, the goal is not to gather people to hang out there. What does an airport do? An airport brings in flights so that it can send that back out again. Bring in so we can send back out. It's a hub to continue to keep that traffic flowing back and forth. And, and if we're not careful, the church can become that place where it's the central place where we come and we just kind of stay there. And we love it because we love one another. And that's good. But we've also got to be that hub that's sending people out continually. And what that means then for our church at the village, and I would encourage you as you think about what this means for, for Shining Star, is I tell every person, yo, every single one of you, you are meant to be sent back out. Because what, what, who you are, you're able to represent different people in our city that someone else in our church might not. And what I love is when we gather for worship and we're singing and praying and hearing the word and getting equipped, I view it as like a launching pad. Like, when I give my benediction at the end of service, I am thinking, whoa, we're sending y'all back out there. Like, boo, boo, like launching pads all throughout the city and beyond. Boo, out to that uh, mom's working group. Boo, out to your gym. Boo, back to the college campus. Boo, you know, all over the city, we're just sending people who are immersed in this gospel culture. And you take with you. And your mission field is those people that God has placed in your circles. So what that means is then I challenge our church all the time. This should impact how we do ministry. So when you go back to work, so many of us just, we're going into work with like a naive mentality. Oh, back to the grind again, Monday morning. But I encourage people, pray before you go to work. Just like, you know, when we go to mission trips, we are amazing at prayer. Like we're going to like the, the Middle East or Africa or South America. We're praying hard. Lord, would you move? Because we're going to... But, but I think our biggest mission field for many of you is like your workplaces, your schools, and we're like naive. We don't even think about it. Pray like you're going on a mission trip. Lord, prepare me for the battle I'm about to walk into because it's brutal. 
I feel like I lose my faith little by little all day. Lord, it's so hard to maintain integrity. Lord, it's so hard to not fall into the rat race everyone else's. Lord, help me to be shining light. Help me to be a man and a woman who loves and serves others. Help me, Lord, to not just hide in my car during lunch break because I'm an introvert. I just need to escape. But Lord, maybe even once a week, God, let me intentionally go to lunch with some of my coworkers and, and break bread with them and show them care and share my time with them because I'm not just here because it was the best job option. But Lord, you've placed me here. You've placed me here. Uh, maybe it means that we start to open our homes more in hospitality. We open our homes that, that you start to say the place where you live is not just an accident. It wasn't just had the best tax rates. It wasn't just the best school system. It wasn't just the best like uh, area of the city. But God has placed you where you live, around the neighbors you have for a purpose. And that you open your home and you start to have your home even be a center of that community where you live. Inviting in neighbors, being in your neighbors' homes, loving them. And you invite some church people into your home at the same time that maybe you have some neighbors. And that your friends who are not Christians, they start to meet other people in church and say, oh, yo, how do you know each other? Oh, we go to the same church. You go to church? Oh, yeah, we, we, we go to church together. So you're not like wacky because I got to know you. I think you're kind of normal. Oh, yeah, we, most of our church is like this. And we got a few wacky people. But, I mean, most of us are like, and because we've got to redefine the narrative. Because most people, when they think of evangelical Christians, they think, again, of some of the things we talked about yesterday. We've got to help redefine the narrative. There are people who also follow Jesus, and we're not judging other folks, but we also follow Jesus. And, and let your love be shown in those things. I, and some people in our church, I love, they've been starting to do this more regularly. They just go to, like, quiz nights together at the pub, at the local pub. And you know, I think it's because they're kind of nerdy. They just like to go to do quiz nights. But they're very intentional about it. They go together in groups of people from the village, but they also very intentionally bring in other friends who don't go to church, and they just go to this thing together because they have this common enjoyment of things like quiz nights. And they go, and they spend time together. And, and, and it's just a good way to think about their social circles as God's mission field as well. And it's exciting when you start to see eventually relationship develop and some of those people start to come to church because they just started to get to know these people and like, you're someone I like to hang out with. And then you have a place to be able to talk about the gospel. And again, I want to be really, really clear here. I am a big proponent sometimes of just going up to strangers, opening up uh, the Bible, and sharing Christ with them. I am never going to look down upon that guy who preaches on the street and like preaches to people. I think it's arrogant sometimes when cool Christians, we say, oh, yeah, that's, we don't do that kind of thing. We're all about, like, serving evangelism. We want to, like, um, you know, wash people's cars, and we want to, like, we, I'm like, you know what, though, but they're talking about Jesus, so I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. So I'm not an opponent of those things, but I think we've also got to build up relationship with people. We've got to build up some kind of trust with people because we've got some work to have to work back on because Christians in general, I don't think, have always done the best job of communicating the way of Christ and all this is just an outflow of what we see described in Acts 17. Probably one, it's just become one of my favorite scriptures. Acts 17, verse 26, where it says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek 
God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And I love what Paul's saying here. What he's saying, there are no accidents. Our God is sovereign. He has placed you exactly where he wanted to. Your job is not an accident. The school that you are in, it's not just because you couldn't get into any other school and you had no choice but to be there. The place where you live is not an accident. The friends you have, the gym you've joined, the clubs you're part of, the family you have, none of that is an accident, but God has allotted in this time where you will be and your boundaries. Why? so that more might seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. It's all purposeful. And, 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 you know, I, I, um, it's exciting when we start to capture this vision. Uh, One of the brothers in our church, his name's Monty, and I love this guy. He, uh, he started coming to our church probably about like five years ago, and First time he walked in, everyone kind of turned because he's just like, he looks like The Rock. I mean, honestly, he looks like Dwayne Johnson. Large man, like stacked, huge, built. Um, And he looked really uncomfortable. But he came in because he heard about the church. And then uh, eventually he's come to know Christ. He's growing to know Christ. He has absolutely no biblical background at all. Like destructive and now following Christ, even in a lot of his brokenness. But one of the ways I loved when I would just talk with him and disciple him, he's always thinking about his friends that don't go to church. Like he's, his goal was that I'm going to have every one of my friends come to church with me sometime. And he would be mentioning this one old friend of his from back in high school, like friends for like 20 years now, and saying, yo, this guy's like the biggest atheist in the world, but man, I'm going to get him to church one day. I'm like, well, yeah, let's pray. Let's pray. And then he's talking about this for years. But then recently this year, he was like, hey, Dan, what do you think of this idea? Um, my friend, he's a jujitsu instructor. And, and, you know, I was thinking, what would it be like? Maybe we can get him in here and start doing some jujitsu stuff and use the church for that and invite other people to be part of it. I'm like, yeah, as long as I don't have to do it. But, you know, I end up doing it too, right? But I was like, sure, that's cool. So we met up. And his friend's a little wary of being in a church, but he's just happy to have a place to be able to train people and do different things. And so Pete starts coming to that. And then he starts coming to worship because Monty's like, well, you should come to church too because we're going to do training right after church. So it's better you just come to service. You're not late. So, so he comes. And he's coming for a few months, and it's just, it's good. He's like, he's like really interested. He's like, yeah, you know, I don't believe all this. And Monty used to tell me about this change in his life, and I thought he was kind of a joker. And, but wow, something's really changing. And then he, he, he would call me like every week to ask about jujitsu stuff and about the church. And honestly, there's a point where like, yeah, you can do that. That's okay. Oh, sure, you can come in. That and, you know, so he calls me and says, hey, can we meet up? I have some questions to talk about. I'm like, yeah, yeah, well, let's, let's meet up. I'm thinking it's going to be about jujitsu. He just comes out and says, I have just been feeling all these weird things happening in my life, and I, ha- I have to believe it's God. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, I just, these things are happening. It can't be coincidence anymore. Like brokenness is happening. I'm getting signs. Can you, can, can you help me walk through that? I'm like, sure, and just share the gospel with him and, and ask him, do you want this in your life as well? Do you want to follow Jesus? He's like, yeah, as we pray for him to receive Christ. Just amazing, and just like this guy who, like, honestly, he, he laughs because he's telling me, yeah, even last year, I, I mean, I grew up in, like, the Orthodox Church, but I really didn't believe any of that. I was actually thought the church is a bunch of hypocrites and stuff. But being part of this community, God's doing something in me. 
And it's just, I mean, he's, there's still baby steps. He's really, he's a baby Christian. But God's doing something in him. And I'm reminded that when we look at our life purposefully, that the people in our life are not accidents. Like, Monty, you think about the people you've run with throughout your life. There is not an accident that you're in their lives. You're, there's not an accident. You're at the places where you are. God has placed you there for your benefit, but also for his glory. But guys, also for those people's benefits. I don't think we think about that enough. God loves the unchristians who are in your circle so much that he would place you in their path. Have you thought about that? God loves the unbelievers in your workplaces, your schools, your neighborhoods, your families so much that he would place people who know and love him into their life, people like you. And I think on our end then, we shouldn't respond by saying, oh, no, Lord, not me, because <laughs> I'm a bad representative. But rather, Lord, if that's the case, give me more of your spirit. Lord, if that's the case, open my eyes to go in with eyes wide open, not naive, not like a civilian walking to war, but, Lord, praying and preparing and getting ready and being equipped. Go into small group, not just to be... Um, get my friend fixed for the week, but Lord, I need to be equipped because I'm going back out there and I feel underprepared and, and be ready to go into our world. And I, I want to, again, I think this really ties into kind of where your church is at this point. Um, from what I've heard about, and I've met some of your pastors this week, you guys, I don't know if you believe this, you are incredibly blessed with like godly pastors, men and women who love you, but more importantly, love God. Um, from what I've heard of your lead pastor, I know he's on sabbatical. I've heard just amazing things. That's a blessing. It's a real blessing. But here's the word I want to give. Um, and I have to tell our church this all the time. Sometimes we give a little bit too much importance to that person in front. And we think real revival is going to come when we have this amazing, like, charismatic preacher who can preach the socks off people, right? Like, with this person who, like, they're able to do When we get that, ooh, we're going to hit revival. Oh, when we finally get enough money that we can get that amazing, like, HD kind of screen in our church, that's when we're really going to hit revival. Oh, when we get enough offering that we can really get that smoke machine, that's when we're really going to hit revival. Maybe. But I tend to think revival happens when the people who are already present as part of the church start to view their life as the ones that God will proclaim his reconciliation through. I'm not diminishing the people who have more prominent public positions ministry-wise, but that's never been the way God has built his church. It's through the one superstar, Jesus, the rest of us followers who commit our life to him and say, Lord, whatever my life is, it's for you. You use it for your own glory, even in my strengths, even in my weaknesses. Lord, let me have eyes wide open wherever I'm at. And that's why worship ultimately drives us. So we gather. I hope you don't get the message, it's not important to worship anymore. If anything, it's that much more important because it's boot camp. It's equipping us. It's training us. And we all heard that famous line, missions exist because worship doesn't. That when we gather together, and I hope you're leaving this retreat, like God is so much bigger to you. And we don't have to make God bigger because he's already big, but sometimes our view of him is small. But we come and gather together so that our eyes get bigger for God. We're like, oh, yeah, I remember again. Oh, he's way bigger than I thought. And that propels you to go out because, like, this God needs more people worshiping him. This God needs every tribe and tongue and people 
of uh, every person to bow down before him because he's that great. And that's why we worship together so that we would be remembering our great God. It's a glorious thing to witness when that happens. Let me close with this story as we, um, as we close up here and, and pray for a moment. Um, I remember a few years back, I took my children, our family, we went to a local lake beach in Baltimore. And we went there um, just for a little summer beach day. And it was really cool, great day, beautiful day. The place was packed. And we're having fun. And then one moment, I start to, and I'm always scanning, right? And I see this man kind of walking around to every, every uh, towel, every place, and saying, and I, I start to realize, he's like, he's like, have you seen my son? Have you seen my son? Have you seen my son? And apparently, he had lost his boy. And he, he had lost his son somewhere there at that local beach. Um, and we're looking around. We couldn't find him. And I just to alleviate some of you really compassionate people right now, it ended up he was a little mentally ill, and apparently his son wasn't there, or he didn't have a son. So just to, don't worry, bad, there was no bad endings here, okay? But, what, but I, we didn't know any of that. And what I remember, and just one of the most moving times for me, they asked every adult to get up, get into that beach, and it was a closed beach. So they said, stretch out across the whole lake and grab hands with the person next to you. And just start walking forward together. And God forbid we run across something, but we're going to cover this whole place together. And I remember doing that. And it was, I mean, it wasn't church people, but I felt like it was one of the most moving experiences for me. Because it gave me a picture of what the church is. That when we unite, when we come together, when we come together, even in spaces like this, when you gather together as a church, you're not just one person out there living out Great Commission. You're united, hand in hand. And God's not saying, hey, your responsibility is all of Northern Virginia. Come on. Come on. You got the Spirit of God in you, all of Northern Virginia. Come on. You got all of Northern Virginia. No, God is saying, you just stay in your lane. And hopefully God increases that lane a little bit. You stay in your lane, but you move forward. But when you are united with a whole bunch of people all staying in our lane, you love the people God's placed in front of you. You serve the people God's placed in front of you. And when we do that together as a community, think about the impact for God's kingdom that happens. How many people are being reached? So much more than a pastor preaching a sermon on one Sunday. How many people are being affected by the gospel and its kindness and its truth throughout the week that you might not even have a clue about? That's the power of the church moving forth together. So in that spirit, can I ask us to stand together right now as we just close and respond for a moment before pastor leads us in closing prayers for this retreat? And can I ask you to just reach across from whoever's with you and just join hands with them? Just reach around to whoever's near you and join hands with them. And can I ask you, just close your eyes with me for a moment. And just imagine, and it's only a few of us here, right? A few, maybe 30, 40 of us here. But imagine the kingdom impact if each of us just owns that place where God has placed us. And says, God, I believe, you, I believe the scriptures that you have put me here for a purpose. And and. My goal is not to love every single person in Maryland and Virginia and D.C. I, there's no way I can do that, but I can love the people you've placed in front of me by the power of your spirit as you tenderize my heart, as you give me focus and vision. And Lord, help me to know that I'm not doing it alone, but I'm united with these other people that you have called my church and the power that goes forth when we are united together on common mission. So let me ask you right now, picture the people who are in your path. 
Picture the people who are in your lane. Picture your schoolmates. Picture the people at your work. Picture your family. Picture your neighbors. People to pe- picture the people in your gyms. Pe- picture the people that maybe you are your friends with, whoever it is, and picture them in your mind right now. And can I ask us to pray and imagine we're walking through our region. We're walking through our area and the church is moving. It might not look like a worship service, but the church is moving forward. Let's pray in God's power that he will strengthen you to do that. And when, even when you're weak, that that might be a way for God to demonstrate his power. That you're not proclaiming how great you are. You're proclaiming even in your weakness, look how much God has done in my life. Let's, let's pray together in one voice, one spirit, as we pray for God's authority sending us as the church. boldness that we wouldn't just start to reduce the church to just for people who are looking for a church Christians but may we be reminded that God loves to save dead people let's pray that together and I think of those lost people in your path that God would give you compassion and kindness translate the gospel in a way that makes sense and great love so pray for them specifically that God would save in repentance Lord because we are sometimes we're so secular but it's in different ways than we might think of that sometimes we're so secular in how we view power and how things happen and we're so much like the world thinking it's the really impressive stuff it's the really charismatic leader or it's the real impressive structure and all that's important but God would you remind us that you love to glory in what we think is weak and Lord you even use your church that's how you've always done it through thousands of years Lord, this is the way you've always built your kingdom moving forward little by little, person by person, each person who's captivated by this message of Christ, sharing it with the next generation, next person. And Lord, would you mobilize this church to do that together as we're united hand in hand, Lord, in spirit across our region. Would we think of ourselves in that same way, moving across together and whoever's in our path, we love them, Lord. Help us to do that. And Lord, I pray for your spirit to empower us, Lord, because we feel weak. We probably feel like there's someone better that could do it. But Lord, may we not diminish your authority in our lives. 
that you've not just called everyone else, you've also called each one in here. So would we do that through your power, through your strength, depending on you? And Lord, a shining star would be known as a church that's on mission in the DMV, but beyond, Lord, to the ends of the earth as more people are captivated by the mission you've called us to be on, why you've given us the church, to glorify your name, that more people might come to worship you. So help us to be obedient in that and help us to find joy and restoration in that and repurposing in why we do what we do, Lord. I'm going to invite Pastor to come up here to, continue to pray, lead us in prayer and uh, just be equipped in these things together.